Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years' War. In the last episode, we had a quick look at what occurred after Isabel left England, and how her time in France and Europe was a little tumultuous. Definitely, it was not a peaceful and settled period for the numerous years she was there. There were some ups and downs that went along with that. We also talked about Isabel leaving France and heading into the Holy Roman Empire, where she met the Earl of Hainault and his family, including Sir John of Hainault and Philippa of Hainault, who was a daughter of said Earl. In the Chronicle, we took a look at how it described this uniting of peoples as a very joyous occasion. Then we took a look at a historical record, and we found that there wasn't quite a matchup. It was a bit more politically motivated. There were definitely some moving pieces and machinations that were involved in that particular meeting and the endorsement of Isabel by the Lords of Hainault, which led to her gathering a number of troops. We also discussed the strangeness of Isabel and Mortimer, the fact that Isabel openly took another man to be her lover at a time where such a thing was regarded incredibly seriously in Europe and was something that could earn very, very serious sentences. And the fact that she got a very lenient sentence, and so did Mortimer at that point, in being effectively exiled from France. And the revoking of privileges of French nobility to work with her or her with them. This week we're going to have a look at some of the consequences of that and how things move forward. Certainly it's an endorsement of Isabel again, her intellect, her wit and her capability that despite being removed from France she's managed to find herself a group of people who can provide the kind of endorsements she needs to raise troops and ingratiate herself with them and set up a political power base. It has been mentioned that Mortimer helped her in this regard. He had contacts who helped find people. But I think there's definitely a strong case to be made that Isabel is a key player in this. Certainly things like the marriage of Edward to Philippa that is promised is the kind of thing that she would have to directly be involved with. And I don't think she was the kind of person, certainly my impression of her is not that she would let Mortimer or the Earl of Kent come in and do those negotiations for her or let Edward negotiate such a thing on his own. Certainly I think she showed much capability, which I'm bringing up mostly because it's looked over in the Chronicle as there is a, a prominence of masculine characters and masculine virtues, but things like strength in politics and diplomacy and key skills and soft skills are largely sort of viewed as thing that you do. It's like a vocation. It's not worth discussing to any degree, while things like deeds on battlefields and chivalric deeds are considered worth recording and mentioning and listing in historical records so that you might be remembered as this great person and wonderful knight. So let's get to the chronicle itself and have a look at chapter 10. How that the Queen Isabel arrived in England with Sir John of Hainault in her company. Thus was Sir John of Hainault moved in his courage, and made his assembly, and prayed the Hainaulters be ready at Howe, and the Brabanters at Breda, and the Hollanders to be at Dordrecht at a day limited. Then the Queen of England took leave of the Earl of Hainault and of the Countess, and thanked them greatly for their honour, feast, and good cheer that they had made her, kissing them at her departing. Thus this lady departed, and her son and all her company with Sir John of Hainault, who with great pain gat leave of his brother, saying to him, My lord and brother, 
I am young, and I think that God hath purveyed for me this enterprise for mine advancement. I believe and think verily that wrongfully and sinfully this lady has been chased out of England, and also her son. It is arms and glory to God and to the world to comfort and help them that be comfortless, and especially so high and so noble a lady as this is, who is the daughter to a king and descended of a royal king. We be of her blood, and she of ours. I had rather renounce and forsake all that I have to go serve God over the sea and never to return into this country, rather than this good lady should have departed from us without comfort and help. Therefore, dear brother, suffer me to go with your good will, wherein ye shall do nobly, and I shall humbly thank you thereof, and the better thereby I shall accomplish all the voyage. And when the good Earl of Hinault had well heard his brother, and perceived the great desire that he had to his enterprise, and saw well that it might turn him and his heirs to great honour hereafter, he said to him, My fair brother, God forbid that your purpose should be broken or let. Therefore, in the name of God, I give you leave, and kissed him, straining him by the hand in a sign of great love. Thus he departed and rode the same night to Mons in Hanolt with the Queen of England. What should I make a long process? They did so much by their journey that they came to Dordrecht in Holland, whereas their special assembly was made, and there they purveyed ships, great and small, such as they could get, and shipped their horses and harnesses and purveyance, and so commanded themselves into the keeping of God and took their passage by sea. In that company there were knights and lords, first Sir John of Hinault, Lord Beaumont, Sir Henry de Antoning, Sir Michael de Ling, Lord of Gamenges, Sir Percival de Samaris, Sir Robert de Bellu, Sir Sans de Boussois, the Lord of Vertang, the Lord of Patel, the Lord Villers, the Lord Henin, the Lord of Sars, the Lord of Bucis, the Lord of Arbracourt, the Lord of Estremal, and Sir Wolfart of Gestel, and diverse other knights and squires, all in great desire to serve their master. And when they were all departed from the haven of Dordrecht, it was a fair fleet as for the quantity and well-ordered. The season was fair and clear and right temperature, and at their departing with the first flood, they came before the dikes of Holland. And the next day they drew up their sails and took their way in coasting Zealand, and their intents were to have taken a land at a port, but they could not, for a tempest took them into sea, that put them so far out of their course, that they wist not two days where they were, of the which God did them great praise. For if they had taken land at the port whereas they thought, they had been all lost, for they had fallen in the hand of their enemies, who knew well of their coming, and abode them there to have put them all to death. So it was that about the end of two days the tempest ceased, and the mariners perceived land in England, and drew to that part right joyously, and there took land on the sands without any right haven or port at Harwich. As the English Chronicle saith, the 24th day of September, the year of our Lord, M-C-C-X-X-V-I, and so abode on the sands. Three days with little purveyance of victual, and unshipped their horses and harnesses, nor they wist not in what part of England they were in, either in the power of their friends or in the power of their enemies. On the fourth day they took forth their way in the adventure of God and of St. George, such as people had suffered great disease of cold by night and hunger and great fear, whereof they were not as clean rid, and so they rode forth by hills and dales on the one side and on the other, 
till at last they found villagers and a great abbey of black monks. The which is called St. Edmund, whereas they three days refreshed themselves. Not too much to talk about there. Let's keep on before we get into any more commentary. Let's go ahead and read chapter 11, how the Queen of England besieged the king, her husband, in the town of Bristol. And then this tiding spread about the realm so much that at the last it came to the knowledge of the lords by whom the queen was called again into England. And they apparelled them in all haste to come to Edward, her son, who they would have to their sovereign lord. And the first that came and gave them most comfort was Henry, Earl of Lancaster, with the wry neck called Tort Cole, who was brother to Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, beheaded, as you have heard, herebore, who was a good knight and greatly recommended, as ye shall hear after in this story. This Earl Henry came to the Queen with great company of men of war, and after him came from one part and other earls, barons, knights, and squires, with so much people that they thought them clean out of their perils, and always increased their power as they went forward. Then they took counsel among them that they should ride straight to the town of Bristow where the king was, and with him the Spencers, the which was a good town and strong, and well closed, standing on a good port of the sea, and a strong council, and the sea beating around it. Again therein the king and Hugh Spencer the elder, who were about ninety of age, and Hugh Spencer his son, who was chief governor of the king, and counselled him in all his evil deeds. Also there was the Earl of Arundel, who had wedded the daughter of Hugh Spencer, and diverse other knights and squires repairing about the king's court. Then the queen and all her company, lords of Hanolt, earls and barons, and all other Englishmen, took the right way to the said town of Bristow. And in every town whereas they entered, they were received with great feast and honour. And always their people increased, so long they rode by their journeys that they arrived at Bristow, and besieged the town round about as near as they might. And the king and Sir Hugh Spencer the Younger held them in the castle. And the old Hugh Spencer and the Earl of Arundel held them in the town. And when the people of the town saw the great power that the queen was of, for almost all of England was of her accord, and perceived what peril and danger evidently they were in, they took counsel among themselves, and determined that they would yield the town up to the queen, so their lives and goods might be saved. And so they sent to treat with the queen and her counsel in this matter. But the queen nor her counsel would not agree thereto, without she might do with Sir Hugh Spencer and with the Earl of Arundel what it pleased her. When the people of the town saw they could have no peace otherwise, nor save the town, nor their goods, nor their lives, in that distress they accorded to the queen and opened the gates, so that the queen and Sir John of and all her barons, knights, and squires entered into the town and took their lodgings within, as many might, and the residue without. Then Sir Hugh Spencer and the Earl of Arundel were taken and brought before the Queen to do her pleasure with them. Then there were brought to the Queen her own children, John, her son, and her two daughters, the which were found there in keeping of the said Hugh Spencer, whereof the Queen had great joy, for she had not seen them long before. Then the King might have great sorrow, and Sir Hugh Spencer the younger, who were fast enclosed in the strong castle, and the most part of the realm turned to the queen's part and to Edward, her eldest son. So what we've read there is a pretty whirlwind kind of warfare 
the Queen enters into England, moves forward, announces her presence, collects supporters as she goes, arrives, immediately sieges Bristow, and the people there immediately think, we're going to lose this. No hope. They go out and treat with the Queen outside of any kind of military consultation. Once that's done, Queen says, look, these are my terms. Meet them or don't. Doesn't matter to me either way, but if you want this to go smoothly for you, meet them. So they do. They open up the town. She comes in, captures anybody she wants to out of the town, but doesn't manage to take the castle that is then central or at least a part of the town. That kind of formation is pretty common around this time period that you have one really defensible structure for a major town, which the implication is at this point Bristow is. That could be a castle for a smaller town. It could just be a citadel. But then there would be towns and markets around that that might have their own separate wall and then pasture and fields outside of that. So there's kind of two points of defense. There's the wall with the town inside of it and then the castle within that. So in this case, the queen and her forces come in. The Chronicle mentioned earlier that their forces were split with Hugh Spencer the Older and the Earl of Arundel guarding basically the city. So they were taking the walls and the city as their defensive points, so they get captured immediately. While within the actual castle itself, you've got Hugh Spencer the Younger directly with Edward II. So they are still holding out at this point. This is probably as close as we're going to get to a good accounting of what happened here. It's worth noting at this point, and kind of calling back to an earlier mention, especially for things like this, Fossar is not an excellent source. And one of the key reasons for that is he has a patron and the patron is paying for him to go on trips and speak to all the people involved in this and visit sites where battles took place and create a book, which is fabulously expensive to do in the time period he's doing it. One of the main sponsors he has in his life, and spoilers, is Philippa. And so that is the same Philippa that is daughter to the Earl of Hanolt. And so, spoiler is, is that she has enough money to pay for this at some point in her life. And she wants to do this as a historical record and to recount, like, these great deeds that her family has done. Definitely having your family come into England and just win a major battle, huge support, and all these kind of stuff. Great PR for your family. Absolutely increases your prestige. But also, you do want to drum it up a little bit, maybe rub out some of the mistakes that might have been made, maybe erase some of the mistakes that might have been made. And so, it's definitely a count where the Queen and the Lords of Hanalt are all really popular. You'll notice that in the descriptions we've heard, you know, when they enter the town, it's the Queen, the Lords of Hanalt, Knights and Squires. When the company left Holland, it made a big list of like, you know, there are all these different knights and earls coming along and they, they don't get mentioned again. All further accounts are the Queen, who is great, wonderful celebrity status, the Knights of Hanalt or the Lords of Hanalt, cool, wonderful people coming for adventure, supporting the Queen as she's this damsel in distress, quote unquote, and then other lords. So definitely take this section of things, especially with a grain of salt, because there's every incentive to just sort of make sure that 
they come out glowing nice and rosy here. To help sort of lend a historical account of what happened for this particular invasion and the battles therein, I'm going to refer to the history of England from the earliest period to the present time, compiled from the most authentic sources by David Hume and William Cook Stafford, Volume 1, from the London Printing and Publishing Company Limited, London, New York. This doesn't have an edition on it, so I can't tell you exactly when this was printed or its age. So it's possible there are some slight errors or information that's been found since this was put together, because I believe this is a relatively old copy, but I still hold that it will have some useful information to share with us. Alright, for those following on along at home, just in case, we're on page 207, we're starting with Insurrections as the title chapter. Edward endeavoured to put himself in a posture of defence, but besides the difficulties arising from his own indolence and slender abilities and the want of authority which, of consequence, attended all his resolutions, it was not easy for him in the present state of his kingdom and revenue to maintain a constant force ready to repel an invasion, which he knew not at what time or place he had reason to expect. That's a hell of an opening. Remember when I said people didn't like Edward? All his efforts were unequal to the traitorous and hostile conspiracies which both at home and abroad were forming against his authority, and by which were daily penetrating farther even into his own family. His brother, the Earl of Kent, a virtuous but weak prince, who was then at Paris was engaged by his sister-in-law and by the King of France, who was his cousin German, to give countenance to the invasion, whose sole object, he believed, was the expulsion of the Spencers. He prevailed on his eldest brother, the Earl of Norfolk, to enter secretly into the same design. The Earl of Leicester, brother and heir to the Earl of Lancaster, had too many reasons for his hatred of these ministers to refuse his concurrence. Walter de Renel, Archbishop of Canterbury, and many other of the pre expressed their approbation of the Queen's measures. Several of the most potent barons envying the authorities several of the most potent barons envying the authority of the favourite were ready to fly to arms the minds of the people by means of some truths and many calamities which were strongly disposed to the same party, and there needed but the appearance of the Queen and the Prince with such a body of foreign troops as might protect her against immediate violence to turn all this tempest so artfully prepared against the unhappy Edward. Charles, though he gave countenance and assistance to the faction, was ashamed openly to support the queen and prince against the authority of a husband and father, and Isabella was obliged to court the allegiance of some other foreign potentate, from whose dominion she might send set out her intended enterprise. For this she financed young Edward, whose tender age made him un incapable to judge the consequences with Philippa, daughter of the Count of Holland and Hainault, and having by the open assistance of this prince and the secret protection of her brother enlisted in her service nearly 3,000 men, she set sail for the harbour of Dort and landed safely without the opposition on the coast of Suffolk. There's a footnote here, the Queen and her troops and Prince Edward landed at Orwell September 24, 1323. The Earl of Kent was in her company, two other princes of the blood, the Earl of Norfolk, the Earl of Leicester joined her soon after landing with all their followers, three prelates, the Bishop of Lye, Lincoln and Hereford, 
brought her both the force of their vassals and the authority of their character. Even Robert de Waterville, who had been sent by the king to oppose her progress in Suffolk, deserted to her with all his forces. To render her cause more favorably, she renewed her declaration that the sole purpose of her enterprise was to free the king and the kingdom from the tyranny of the Spencers, and the Chancellor Baldock their creature. The populace were allured by her spacious pretenses. The barons thought themselves secure against forfeiture by appearance of the prince in her army, and a weak, irresolute king supported by ministers generally odious was unable to stem this torrent, which bore with such irresistible violence against him. Edward, after trying in vain to rouse the citizens of London to some sense of duty, departed for the west, where he hoped to meet with better reception, and he had no sooner discovered his weakness by leaving the city than the rage of the populace broke out without control against him and his ministers. They first plundered, then murdered all those who were obnoxious to them, seizing the Bishop of Exeter, a virtuous and loyal prelate, as he was passing through the streets, and having beheaded him, threw his body into the river. They made themselves masters of the tower by surprise, then entered into a formal association to put to death without mercy everyone who should dare oppose the enterprise of Queen Philippa and of the prince. A like spirit was soon communicated to all other parts of England, and through the few servants of the king who still entertained the thought of performing their duty into terror and astonishment. Edward was hotly pursued to Bristol by the Earl of Kent, seconded by the foreign forces under John de Hainault. He found himself disappointed in his expectations with regard to the loyalty of these parts, and he passed over to Wales where he flattered himself his name was more popular, and which he hoped to find uninfected with the contagion of general rage which had seized the English. The Earl of Spencer, created Earl of Winchester, was left governor of the castle in Bristol, but the garrison mutinied against him and he was delivered into the hands of his enemies. This venerable noble, who had nearly reached his 90th year, was instantly, without trial or witness or accusation or answer, condemned to death by the rebellious barons. He was hanged on a gibbet, his body was cut to pieces and thrown to the dogs, and his head was sent to Winchester, the place whose title he bore, and was there set on a pole and exposed to the insults of the populace. The king, disappointed, took anew in his expeditions of succour from the wealth. He took shipping for Ireland, but being driven back by the contrary winds, he endeavoured to conceal himself in the mountains of Wales. He was soon discovered and was put into the custody of the Earl of Leicester and was confined in the castle of Kenilworth. The younger Spencer, his favourite, who also fell into the hands of his enemies, was executed. So, that story is very similar and very different. There are a lot of parts from what we've just read, which clearly reflect what was told in the Chronicle. The Queen received massive popular support. The Barons, Major Earls, Princes of the Blood came to work with her, work for her, and pursue her goal of driving out the Spencers, as well as generally seizing power in England. People around her general populace of towns were hugely supportive of her cause. Whether you argue that they were supportive of her or just generally so absolutely sick of Edward and his ministers that they just worked for Isabel's cause simply by murdering a bunch of people who would have supported Edward and tried to make sure that he was paid taxes or support or troops went in his direction, or they genuinely cared about Isabel's cause, is probably place by place and up for many case by case discussions that I'm not looking to get into here. But it was also different. There was no one great battle that secured Hugh Spencer the Elder. There was no great siege mentioned of a castle. In fact, it looks like mostly the Spencers and Edward 
just progressively led a staggered series of defeats as they tried to stay one step ahead, and eventually Isabel and her troops caught up with them, at which point they were captured and many of them were killed. It's definitely a good case of the Chronicle being close to the truth, but also definitely taking some liberties in some places. We've seen a couple of points in the Chronicle now where Poissar has just said, look, I don't want to drag this out anymore. We'll just skip to the good part. And some of this information has just been condensed a little bit and lost. And there have been, you know, a couple of moments now where we've seen that maybe things have been polished up a little bit just to make them a little bit more palatable so that when you read them to a crowd, you know, instead of you just slowly moving across the country, taking a bunch of towns or people rioting in the streets, they can sort of look back and think, yeah, what we were doing was not mass insurrection, riot, general disorder, and killing a bunch of people without due cause. What we were doing is we were supporting the queen in her effort to free England of the tyranny of the Spencers. That sounds better. I think that's probably everything we've got time for for this week's episode. I want to give you a little bit of a chance to digest that information. Next week, we'll be having a look at chapter 12 in the Chronicle, and we will have a little bit of catching up to do. I want a little bit ahead in the history of England there to try and paint a full picture of the event. And so chapter 12 will be us having a look at Hugh Spencer the Elder and the Earl of Arundel being judged to death. Chapter 13 will be Hugh Spencer being put to his judgment. And we might even make it, if we're lucky, to chapter 14, where we might see the consequences of this particular war play out more fully. I'm sure we'll also have plenty of opportunities to reach back into my library of other historical records so that we can get a different perspective on how some of these different points play out. It's going to be exciting to see how this point of turmoil in England ends and what England's going to look like as it comes out of this particular era of civil war and general mismanagement. Will it come out strong? Will it come out weaker? Well, I suppose if you'd like to know, you're going to have to join me on our next episode. So I'll see you there for more Chronicles, The Hundred Years' War.